Hello everyone, and welcome back to another effervescent episode of Chatting Tonight. And while this episode is not about hot fuzz, stay, stay anyway, babies. It's about some other mothers, the mothers of psychoanalysis, and some other other mothers. Those mothers that have just pissed me off, and I feel the need to bitch. I mean, vent constructively in a totally relatable and not insane way. So let's do it to it, shall we? As a seasoned podcaster with seven wildly unpopular episodes under my belt, I realize the importance of starting each show on a positive note. And for today's episode... What would be better than sharing an inspirational quote from one of the 20th century's most inspirational philosophers, Jack Handy? Today, I accidentally stepped on a snail on the sidewalk in front of our house, and I thought, I too am like that snail. I build a defensive wall around myself, a shell, if you will, But my shell isn't made out of a hard, protective substance. Mine is made out of tinfoil and paper bags. And let's begin. (sighs) Okay, I don't know about you guys, but I feel like I just took a cold shower. Genius. So give me just a second to dry myself off emotionally. Much better. So, the inspiration for today's topics came in a kind of twofold way. The first being that there seems to be, I see, a large influx of experts on narcissistic personality disorder. I'm sure you guys have too. And I'm not saying I'm an expert. Far far from it. I'm just a quasi-educated, interested observer of human nature without actually wanting to be a participant. But it's sort of annoying how, like, everyone just happens to know everything about it. Now it's... I don't know. I find it annoying. I'm sure you guys do, too. And the second was a show that felt more like a pigeonhole depiction of what women were posing as what women are as opposed to a celebration of women. And I thought, maybe I can combine these two and get something. (laughs) We will see. So we'll have a celebration of some of the female pioneers of psychoanalysis, one of whom played an integral part on the subject of narcissism. I'm going to make an amalgam here of sorts. (laughs) I will find any way to combine things and make them work to my benefit. Like magic. I mean, you guys should see me in my everyday life with just rationalizations and compartmentalizations. It is both stunning and brave. I also thought... um, that honestly, there could be some material here that you may not see in yourself, but you might see in somebody else, and it could provide a greater understanding into human nature and its mechanisms. Maybe we'll get something out of this. I, I never know. This It's all one great experiment, isn't it? Um, speaking of narcissists, not me and not funny. The first gal on our list is Helene Deutsch. Some of you may be familiar with her work and some not. I certainly didn't want to do some boring academic dossier on her, so I hopped on the internet and I found such a great article that it seemed like the perfect introduction from the New York Times dated July 30th 1978 
Helene Deutsch and the Legacy of Freud. It starts with a quote, society may change, but the meaning of the unconscious is immortal. At age 93, Helene Deutsch is the last of the original Freudians. Though attacked by feminists, angered by her theories about female sexuality, she is a prime example of a liberated woman. Some 20 years ago, one of her younger colleagues invited Helene, grand dame of the Boston psychoanalysis and pioneer in the Freudian movement, to dinner. Worried lest she not be sufficiently amused, he also invited a notable from Boston's music community to ensure her entertainment. At the last moment, however, the musician was unable to attend, and the host recounts today he apologized profusely for the musician's absence as soon as Dr. Deutsch arrived. Then, in her 70s, Dr. Deutsch merrily laughed, Don't worry, she assured him, if I'm here, I'm the party. If anyone else had said that, it would have been sheer arrogance, said the host, now one of Boston's senior analysts. But in Helene Deutsch, it was just an adequate appraisal of the facts. She was livelier in her 70s than most people in their 30s. She was the party. Helene Deutsch has not always been so affirmatively received. In fact, she has been a prime target for many arch-feminists in recent years because of her association with Freud and her championing of his theories about women. Contemporary feminism inaugurated its, its existence as a movement with an attack on the teachings and principles of Sigmund Freud. Those women who have come to represent the movement to the news media have insisted that if any one man promoted the oppression of women, it was he, Freud, the slave driver of the unconscious, chased women from the consulting room to the nursery and kitchen, they say, and generations of analysts and psychiatrists who came after him kept them bound to pots and pans, diapers, and baby carriages. The liberation of women, feminists claimed, depended on exposing the errors of these theories, which have chained women to traditional stereotypes and prevented them from taking charge of their lives and their worlds. Because Helene Deutsch was a celebrated exponent of Freud's theories, she has felt the heat of the feminists. Helene is the oldest of the original Freudians the first woman analyst to be analyzed by Freud himself and one of the few pupils he agreed to treat himself. In her renowned two-volume work, The Psychology of Women, she presents the most comprehensive psychoanalytic account of the subject to date, while her book, Neurosis and Character Types, is a classic descriptive exposition. Thus, Helene Deutsch has, for most of her 93 years, lived the life of a liberated woman. In the 1900s, she was a socialist and fought for the rights of women, and even in her 80s, marching against the war in Vietnam, she was one of the most politically committed of her peers. And therein is the paradox. Her life seems at odds with the theories about women that she herself has projected and which the feminists have found so distasteful. Dr. Deutsch comes out of her study to greet me. She moves slowly now, aided by a cane, upon which she leans heavily as she navigates through the house. Her face betrays no singularity that might set her apart from others her age. It is her spirit, her confident, lively gestures, and her relish for antidotal richness that reveal the texture of her life and her work. Her accent is thickly ornamented with her native Polish annotations. When she speaks, she rolls the English language over her tongue, molds it into her idiosyncratic syntax. She speaks five languages, says Dr. Edward Bibring, a contemporary of Dr. Deutsch, all of them in Polish. She was admitted to the University of Vienna's medical faculty, where she planned to become a pediatrician, but later changed her mind and decided to become a psychiatrist. At this time, a friend introduced her to Freud's work. What attracted me to Freud, she recalls, was his theory of infantile sexuality and the unconscious, but also his protest against society. In 1918, Helene, determined to be introduced to the study of psychoanalysis by the master, asked Freud to analyze her. 
What will you do if I refuse, he asked. When she replied that she would abandon the field altogether, Freud agreed to treat her. You know, for me, he was the greatest revolutionary. He was apolitical, but he was revolutionary. She adds with her characteristic irony, people ask me if I can briefly define what Freud has done, and I say, oh, only very little. He only found that children are not saints and discovered the meaning of the unconscious. Those are two modest things. Now, the focus of the attack on Dr. Deutsch is her massive work, The Psychology of Women. Published in America in 1944, it consists of a volume on girlhood and a second volume on motherhood. Dr. Deutsch begins with women's early years, examines puberty and adolescence, and discusses the onset of menstruation, which, according to Dr. Deutsch, completes the process that establishes the foundation of the feminine personality and forms what she terms the feminine core. Proceeding from this point, Dr. Deutsch describes what she considers to be three essential traits of femininity, narcissism, passivity, and masochism. These traits in conflict or combination generally place a woman in one of several categories. The feminine erotic, a sacrificing mothering woman who is more interested in love than in sex. The masculine active, woman whose dominance and aggressiveness is often a reaction against fears of dependency or the homosexual. According to Dr. Deutsch, a small girl's passage to maturity is marked by a renunciation of the masculine active tendencies in favor of the passive tendencies. This passage sets loose female masochism, the desire to be overpowered. But because of this masochism and its dangers to the ego, a counteracting narcissism is aroused. Women's sexual goals are dangerous for her ego because they are masochistic in character, Dr. Deutsch writes, and the riddle of feminine narcissism can only be solved if we understand feminine masochism, the aggressor in the inner conflict. She illustrates her contentions with case studies, vignettes, examples from literature and history. But her critics say her biases permeate her presentation of female development. Her ideal woman is one who is passive and nurturing, a woman whose sexual pleasure is a reward for her, quote, service to the species, end quote. This image has aroused a howl of protest from feminists who view it as an outgrowth of Freud's theories on sexuality, sex roles, and the unconscious. In the early 60s, Betty Friedan's book, The Feminine Mystique, accused Freud of providing a rationale for women's oppression. According to Friedan, Helen Deutsch and other followers of Freud, quote, not only compounded his errors, but in their torturous attempt to fit their observations of real women into his theoretical framework, closed questions that he himself had left open. Thus, for instance, Helen Deutsch equates femininity with passivity and masculinity with activity, end quote. Dr. Deutsch, needless to say, does not agree with the feminist criticism. What she says about women is she feels neither derogatory nor incorrect. Of passivity, she writes in The Psychology of Women, quote, if we replace the expression toward, turn toward passivity by activity directed inward, the term feminine passivity acquires a more vital content and the ideas of inactivity, emptiness, and immobility are eliminated from its connotation. The term activity directed inward indicates a function. It expresses something positive and can satisfy the feminists among us who often feel that the term feminine passivity has some derogatory implications." End quote. Today, as she sits in the study of her home, surrounded by her huge library of sociological, psychological, and philosophical works and novels, she further explains the meaning of that concept. When I say passive, I do not mean women should not work. I never said that. Quite the contrary. 
I mean positive things. The capacity for identification is a positive thing for a woman. A woman does not stop being a woman when she identifies with a man. She believes that motherhood is one of the most positive experiences a woman can have, but neither in print nor in conversation has she ever said that women should be mothers. The psychology of women is full of stipulations to the contrary. Furthermore, she enunciated a pro-choice stand on the abortion issue at a time when such a position was not at all popular. In my view, she wrote, Every woman has the right to achieve motherhood and to renounce motherhood, whether it is legal or not. What many agree to be her most original contribution to analytic literature has, in fact, nothing to do with women's specific problems. In a short essay published in 1942 on the as-if personality, Quote, an emotionally distorted type of human being who can sustain his own personality only through the identification with others, end quote. She anticipated recent work on narcissistic character disorders. And that is what I'm going to talk about later is that as if personality. It's, it's pretty great. Okay, back to the article. When Dr. Deutsch says that women's career often affects her ability to be a good mother, she thinks of her own dilemmas as a mother. She admits frankly that her relationship with her only son suffered because of her professional obligations prevented her from spending enough time with him. One feels that her emphasis on passivity and motherhood is a recomps in theory for what she may have felt to be failings in her personal life. And when she speaks of the terrible strength of the mother-daughter bond and the daughter's need to separate from her mother, she is undoubtedly remembering her own battle for liberation. Okay, this part is incredible. One poignant vignette from The Psychology of Women illustrates this struggle. It tells the story of a woman who has been unable to carry a baby to term because her negative relationship with her own mother has kept her from forming a positive image of motherhood. She consistently loses her babies in the last month of pregnancy. Then, her close friend becomes pregnant, and a month later, when the woman finds herself again pregnant, her identification with both her friend and her friend's living mother allows her to carry her baby longer than ever before. When the time of her friend's delivery comes, the woman worries that she will lose her source of identification and thus her baby, but a miracle occurs. The friend, seemingly by act of will, holds off delivery for a month until the woman can successfully deliver. Later on, when the woman becomes pregnant again, her friend's presence seems enough to assure her of a successful delivery. Then, suddenly, the friend moves out of town, and though the woman seeks help through psychoanalysis, she again loses her baby. The story is told with enough novelistic attention to detail to make it fascinating, but it is all the more interesting when we learn, as Dr. Deutsch tells me, that the woman who could not have more than one child was Helene Deutsch herself. Her friend was the psychoanalyst Marianne Chris, and the analyst was Freud. Helene Deutsch was her own proof for her theory about the potency and problematic nature of the mother-daughter bond. Did that just blow your fucking socks off? Like when I read that, my fucking socks blew off. Okay. Age has dulled some of the impact of attacks against her. If she hears of a new criticism of her work, she merely shrugs her shoulders. Sometimes, she even agrees with assessments of her personality. To accusations that she was a narcissistic woman, she replies, I probably was. When they say she was temperamental, she asks, What does that mean? That I am loving when I am loving and angry when I'm angry? I agree. When asked if she would revise any of her theories, she simply chuckles, Make me a proposition. 
the only thing she would still like to do, she says, smiling her impish smile, is complete her interrupted analysis. After I stopped analysis with Freud, I wanted to finish it. Freud had no time and was already sick, so he sent me to Carl Abram in Berlin. But Abram wrote Freud that he is too much my friend to analyze me. And so, she laughs, I am sitting here waiting for analysis. According to one feminist critic, Dr. Deutsch, quote, turned a blind eye to male and female reality and was a pioneer, but a traitor to her sex. My profusest apologies for the interruptions during that article, but that was incredible, I thought. And you have to know that that is actually saying something for me to compliment anything from the New York Times, even if it's from 1978. And on a personal note, if you only knew how difficult it was for me to speak coherently for six minutes at a clip, you, you would be duly impressed. So before we dip our toes into the as if personality and narcissism, I thought I would throw in this small excerpt from Stephen Mitchell, PhD, and an article he authored from Contemporary Psychoanalysis just for a bit of historical context on the term narcissism and its relationship to Freud and consequently Freudians and then by proxy a little bit on Jung whom I love and I do touch on slightly later uh, connections connections my friend six degrees of rationalizations but I digress Although he had been using the term for some years prior, Freud formally introduced the concept of narcissism into psychoanalytic theory in 1914, on the heels of Jung's painful defection from the psychoanalytic community. The theory of narcissism was largely a response to the conceptual challenge posed by Jung's critique of Freudian theory. Freud's libido theory had provided a powerful and compelling account of the various forms of neurosis, tracing them through complex associative pathways of transformation and disguise to conflicts over libidinal wishes. Jung objected to what he felt was the narrowness of this account of human motivations, arguing that other kinds of issues, totally independent of sexuality, played a central role in mental health and psychopathology, particularly in psychotic disturbances such as schizophrenia. To meet Jung's challenge and to save his larger ambitions for libido theory, Freud had to account for schizophrenia and libidinal terms to derive it interpretively from psychosexual wishes and conflicts. In order to bring schizophrenia within the explanatory sway of libido theory, Freud expanded his view of the nature and developmental course of psychosexuality. By introducing narcissism as a pre-stage of object relations, Freud was able to generate a plausible, although misleading and inaccurate account of schizophrenic phenomenology and symptomology. The introduction of the concept of narcissism, however, had larger implications than providing a theory of schizophrenia. The concept of narcissism allowed the kind of questions like, how does a person come to experience and visualize himself the way he does? How does self-regard develop and how is it maintained? Over the subsequent history of psychoanalytic ideas, the problem of narcissism, the development and maintenance of self-regard and self-image has become a common realm into which all psychoanalytic theories, classical, ego-psychological, interpersonal, and object-relational have forayed. Although narcissism is often discussed in connection with more severe catarological disturbances, conceptualizations of and technical recommendations for narcissistic phenomena have led to an enormous influence on clinical practices across all diagnostic groupings and on our own everyday observances and conversations. I mean, don't you think? Anyway, speaking of influence, the as-if personality. Now, it's in 
1942 that we first hear about Helene Deutsch's as-if personality in an article that was published in the Psychoanalytic Quarterly. And Dr. Deutsch writes that these individuals convey the impression of complete normality. They are smart and even gifted. However, on closer observation, it becomes apparent that their relationships are devoid of any trace of warmth, that their expressions of emotions are formal, that inner experience is completely excluded. She shared that these individuals behaved as if they had real feelings and emotional relationships, and she compared them to actors who were technically well-trained but cannot impart any sense of vitality to the role. And she described these patients as being passive and easily identifying with other people's feelings, beliefs, and ideologies. Their relationship lacked any genuine emotional connection with the other person and were devoid of any actual meaning. Such individuals have no consistent moral or ideological beliefs, and rather their values and positions are taken from those to whom they attach and identify with. People with this as-if personality do not really display aggression, but they present with a mild amiability. They are on the surface, compliant and obedient, but they may be drawn into antisocial or criminal groups because there is no internalized conscience the as-if personality completely identifies with external objects. They take on the values and morals of the other person or the group. The authority for moral decisions only exists externally. The as-if personality would easily go along with the crowd. And they share features in common with many patients who would now be diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. The as-if personality's lack of emotion and the borderline personality's unstable emotions both give rise to an inner deficit in the sense of identity. If you're interested in some more Helene, I provided a link to her article, The Imposter, Contribution to Ego Psychology of a Type of Psychopath. And the introduction from the editor alone should be enough to make you want to check it out but it also is a really great and a quick read as well dr deutsch's fascinating case study concerns itself with a variant of psychopathic personality known as the imposter dr deutsch's skill in depicting this peculiar flavor of human personality she was the first to define the as if individual is apparent throughout the article the odd nature of the tie to reality in this disturbance is thoroughly examined. Reality is viewed as a stage for the performer with humanity as the admiring audience. The truly parasitic nature of the individual thus lies exposed. There is no real object libido since all ties to the outer world are intended only to extract gifts from it. These persons are seen as forever in pursuit of an identity which does justice to their narcissistic concept of themselves. The new identity serves, at the same time, as a denial of what must lie underneath, a passive, frightened, essentially hollow character structure. The pretending and posturing may be conceived of as a defense against anxiety and guilt, which breaks down only when the individual is confronted with his own, quote, true identity, end quote. Dr. Deutsch speaks of this variation of ego structure as the non-ego ego, an agency which seeks to force an unrealistic ego ideal upon the outer world through identification with someone else's ego. The imposter usually appears to have some talent, on occasion unusual intellect, but he can satisfy his grandiose fantasies only through acting out. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this peek into 
one hell of a mother, Helene Deutsch. And when, when I think of how all of her work started early, you know, like so early when women weren't even allowed to go to school at advanced academic levels, and then it progressed through these decades until women had just really started to enter the workforce, you know, like in the 30s and 40s. I mean, she was a woman, a liberated woman, with the most notable contribution to the subject of narcissism. We f- and we find ourselves so often commenting about narcissistic females. And I think that females are actually better at quickly sussing out a narcissist than men are. Um, even though I still think it's about 50-50 with there being men and women with narcissism. I just think that they express it differently and that women are more subversive. So when you see studies, it seems like men have more narcissism, but I think it's about even equality, baby. I think I've said that before. Um, anyway, I find it interesting. I-, I hope you did too. So we started the show with a quote and we started this segment off with a quote. And I think that we should finish the segment off with a quote. It's the embattled gates to equal rights indeed opened up for modern women. But I sometimes think to myself, that is not what I meant by freedom. It's only social progress. If I couldn't be pretty, I decided to be smart. And so begins our introduction to Karen Horney, a very smart cookie who established one of the best known theories of neurosis that anxiety is caused by interpersonal relationships because people are the worst. Well, I added that last part, but you know it's true. And that we can overuse some of the methods that we do use to cope with anxiety and then increase our neurosis. And that as children, we often experience things that fuel this anxiety. She, too, was also one of the first women to train as a Freudian psychoanalyst. And when she contested Freudian theory and that Freudian psychoanalysis was male-centric because it had been developed by men, she proved to be so controversial that she was barred from the New York Psychoanalytic Institute in 1941. She also expanded the field of psychology by challenging these concepts and creating concepts of female psychology. In The Flight from Womanhood, she argued against Freud's theory that all women experience penis envy. She posited that while girls may experience penis envy at a young age, this longing can also apply to young boys who want breasts or to be a mother. To her, penis envy comes from the girls' disappointment with their fathers, leading to a, quote, flight from womanhood, end quote, or a desire to not be female. She further traced what she termed the distrust between the sexes throughout history and culture. She wrote that, as a whole, society simultaneously feared and resented women in such a way that it forced them into a position where they were dependent upon men. She concluded that the distrust between the sexes was not based in penis envy, but actually in womb envy, men's envy of woman's ability to produce life. She elaborated on this in greater detail in a September 1930 meeting of the German Psychoanalytic Society. Her talk focused on the psychology of men's social dominance. From infancy onwards, she argued, man entertains the image of a nurturing, selfless, self-sacrificing mother, the ideal embodiment of the woman who could fulfill all his expectations and longings. This, in turn, gives rise to bitterness at not being able to become a mother himself. To compensate, Horni maintained men have instead given birth to culture from which they exclude women in the name of their supposed inferiority. 
men also stave off envy of mothering by devaluing it and overvaluing male genitality. An example was Freud's theory of female penis envy. Moreover, she observed, because men's theories enjoy cultural homogeny in male-dominated society, women, including Deutsch, subscribe to these ideologies even though they denigrate women and conceal the conflict of their interest with those of men. Hand to God, guys. I, I think I have a point that I'm getting to, being that... I believe that what we're discussing right now and what we're going to further discuss actually has some value to what is happening in today's society. I don't know. I still find it relevant and topical. So back to it. Undeterred, Horni optimistically used her mothering and analytic experience to insist that women are indeed men's equals. Just as girls fear the father, she emphasized, so boys equally fear the mother. As regards marriage, she argued that man's attitude is conditioned by infantile desire to escape a forbidding mother, guilt at desiring his wife insofar as he equates her with his mother, and this being exasperated by her actually becoming a mother, and fear lest he not satisfy his wife and hence be ridiculed by her, as he felt his mother ridiculed his masculinity as a child. This, or a somewhat similar point, has in turn been recently developed by the French psychoanalyst Janine Chassejou-Smirgel, pardon my butchering of the French language, as a cause of male perversion and fetishism. To defend themselves against such humiliation, Horni wrote, Men variously retaliate by overemphasizing their masculinity as a value in and of itself, or by attempting to demean and undermine women. Freud, by contrast, had argued that men seek to do down their lovers to make them as different as possible from the mother with whom sex threatens to invite patriarchal retaliation. Not that men do not fear the father. Indeed, they do. But Horni pointed out this fear is double-edged, for it also bolsters men's narcissism insofar as it involves identification with a powerful image of the father. No wonder it is more available to consciousness and was more obvious to Freud than men's fear of women, which has no such narcissistic payoff. Nonetheless, Horni reiterated Melanie Klein's observation the general psychoanalytic neglect of which she deplored that underneath men's fear of the father is a much more deep-seated fear of the mother. Dun dun dun! Her work had influence on others as well. Maslow credited her with founding humanistic psychology and being an influence on his creation of the hierarchy of needs. It was her beliefs on neurotic behavior that has had the profoundest effect by her challenging the belief that one's neurotic behavior was an intrinsic part of who they are, but as a result of their environmental and social upbringing, that all people needed supportive, affectionate environments and be able to maintain strong relationships in order to realize their real self. And to quote Kaufman's article in Scientific America, because hey, if someone can say it better than me, I'm certainly gonna let them. If the spirit at home is one of warmth or mutual respect and consideration, the child can grow unimpeded, Horni explained. Unfortunately, in our civilization, there are many environmental factors adverse to a child's development. Harassed by these disturbing conditions, the child gropes for ways to keep going, ways to cope with this menacing world. In doing so, he develops not only ad hoc strategies, but lasting character trends which become part of his personality. Horni includes a long list of environmental factors that influence the development of our neurotic trends, from well-meaning parents who exert too much pressure on the child to succeed to parents who are unpredictable and constantly shift back and forth between smothering love and intimidation, tyranny and glorification, comradeship and authoritarianism, to parents who force the child to take one parent's side over another, 
to parents who make a child feel that his or her entire purpose on the planet is to live up to their expectations, enhance their prestige, or blindly serve their needs, keeping the child from recognizing his or her existence as an individual with distinct rights and responsibilities. Neurotic pursuits are almost a caricature of the human values they resemble, she observes. The biggest indication that a basic need has developed adversely is the compulsive nature of the need. In the grip of a neurotic striving, we are often unaware of the extent to which it is determining and taking over our life. Neurotic trends are pursued indiscriminately, like we must have everyone like us, even if we don't like the person. And thwarting of the neurotic trend in any situation often leads to panic and anxiety. As she pointed out, neurotic trends serve an immensely important function in maintaining a sense of safety and security, which is why such individuals feel great terror if their neurotic trend is threatened in any way. They're soothing illusions. The deep implication of Horneye's work is that when in the grip of a neurotic trend, we are so hung up on our tyrannical shoulds that we aren't actually moving in the direction we truly value. And what are the main neurotic trends in humans? Uh, Horney proposed 10 of them. It was the need for affection and approval, the need for a partner, the need to restrict one's life, the need for power, the need to exploit others, the need for personal admiration, the need for personal achievement, the need for independence, and the need for perfection. Horney astutely observed that many of them cluster together, they are compatible with each other and don't lead to inner conflict. For instance, a compulsive craving for power often goes along with a craving for prestige, as well as the tendency to exploit others. A compulsive craving for affection often goes along with the compulsive need for approval from others, as well as the need for a strong romantic partner who will quote, solve all problems and provide one with an identity. However, she also noted that some clusters are at odds with, with each other. Taking a more panoramic view of human nature, she proposed three main directions in which a person can move toward people, against people, and away from people. So now that we know that there are three main directions in which a person can move, let's play what is your neurotic trend. And I'm going to give you like a little definition part. And then at the end is the scale that was created by Frederick Coolidge and his colleagues that measure these neurotic trends. And so like after each one, see how much you agree with each item um, and try not to shit your pants and see if you like um, identify with one or maybe like with all three, like maybe you vacillate between all three of them. So, okay, here we go. Moving towards people, which is compliance. Having what is known as the compliant personality these people appease others at any personal cost, including self-subordination and the shedding of individuality. They evaluate themselves by what others think and become overly dependent on other people for love and safety. Horn and I believe that these people gain a feeling of support and belonging, which minimizes their feelings of weakness and isolation. However, in doing so, they accept their own helplessness and can only feel safe and secure when they win the affection of others and their support. If there are dissenting parents, the child will often attach themselves to the most powerful person or group to create an increased sense of belonging, which makes the child feel less weak and less isolated. The basic element of anxiety, helplessness, is overemphasized in this way of living. In modern research, this approach to others has been shown to be positively correlated with dependent and histrionic personality disorders, as well as an anxious attachment style. So see if you identify with any of these. I need to be liked by everyone. I am completely self-sacrificing. I'd almost always rather be with someone else than be alone. 
I care very much what other people think of me. I feel crushed if I am rejected. I feel weak and helpless when I'm alone. I try to avoid fighting or arguing. I tend to feel it's my fault if something goes wrong. I tend to be the one who apologizes first. I need the company of others. And we have the second, which is moving against people, aggressive. Having the aggressive personality, these individuals automatically distrust other people's feelings and intentions and rebel in whatever way they can. They accept the hypocrisy and hostility around them and determine, consciously or unconsciously, to fight. They distrust the feelings and intentions of others towards themselves and tend to have a jungle worldview and are prone to fighting. They want to be the stronger person at all times and defeat others, partly for their own protection and partly for revenge. The element of hostility is overemphasized in this way of living. Modern research correlates this type with antisocial, borderline, narcissistic, paranoid, and passive-aggressive personality disorders. And here are some of the items from the scale. It's a hostile world. Life is a struggle. I like to be in command. Only the strongest survive. I enjoy feeling powerful. I enjoy outsmarting other people. Other people are too sentimental. I am uninhibited and brave. To survive in this world, you have to look out for yourself first. It's a fact of life that most successful people step on others to get ahead. And the third trend is moving away from people detached. Having the detached personality, these people do not have feelings of belonging or the desire to fight, but prefer to be kept apart from other people. Instead, they are more concerned with distancing themselves from others, but in doing so, they are also estranged from themselves. They consciously and unconsciously avoid emotional involvement with others and display an exaggerated need for self-sufficiency. They build up a world of their own with nature, dolls, books, and dreams. The element of isolation is emphasized. And in modern research, this is positively correlated with avoidant personality disorder as well as avoidant attachment style. And here are some of the items. I am self-sufficient. I don't really need people. I could live quite well without anyone. I avoid long-term obligations. I resent people trying to influence me. I try to avoid advice from others. I could live fine without friends or family. I like it better when people do not share their thoughts or feelings with me. I feel I'd be better off without people than with people. I try to avoid conflicts. But let's be clear. It's perfectly normal and healthy to value solitude, to want to express frustration and anger when your needs are thwarted, and to desire the affection and adulation of others. Neurotic trends are defined specifically by their compulsive nature and the ability to seize upon the whole person. The healthy personality is able to flexibly switch between various strivings and regulate behavior in a productive manner that actually moves the person towards fulfillment. And I think most importantly, we need to remember that Karen Horney also believed in the real self, a self that aspires to a healthy self-realization, that this real or possible self is made of intrinsic potentialities, your actual self exists in any moment, like right fucking now, at this moment. It's made of one's strengths, weaknesses, failures, and achievements. She wrote, to be without pretense, to be emotionally sincere, to be able to put the whole of oneself into one's feelings, one's work, one's beliefs. 
It sounds like a great place to be. And I'm glad you're here with me. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, kids. Stick around. It's time for Relatable Rantings with Margo. Hello, and welcome to the equivalent of a scanning electron microscope peeking into my head exploding. I'm already beefing with my dog, so it seems like as good a time as any to just do a little rant, shall we? And I just want to start this off. Nay, I need to start this off. I have to get this off my chest. You know the baby corn that they put in Chinese food? That is fucking trash food, okay? It, if you don't know this, it's a goddamn cereal grain, all right? It, I am so tired of these chintzy ass baby corn, celery filler, shithead Chinese food restaurants, okay? Where I live, you pay a premium for the most mediocre Chinese food you could ever have in your life. And I, as an American, just want to be able to afford Chinese American food. That's good. Like, once a week? Maybe... Once every two weeks? I mean, is that too much to ask for in this day and age? Okay, sorry. I I had to express, not repress, that irritation. Okay, I do have a minor rant with the Daily Mail, or the Daily Fail if you're a subscriber, um, and an actual mother, Emily Radajowski. Because every fucking day, there is some abjectly ridiculous headline regarding her, okay? Listen to some of these. Emily whatever dons leather jacket and black crop top as she steps out with baby son Sylvester in New York City, dot, 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 after confirming Pete Davidson romance. Or Emily whatever bundles in colorful jacket with baseball cap as she steps out with son Sylvester one for a walk in New York City. Or, Emily whatever bundles up in red ski jacket and ripped jeans as her friend pushes son's stroller, dot dot dot, after spending evening with Pete Davidson. Or, Emily whatever is effortlessly cool as she models unique yellow cow print cohort while running errands in New York City, dot dot dot, amid Pete Davidson romance like on and on and on to forever. I mean, I actually have a whole trove of these ridiculous headlines because I'm obviously sick in the head, but also I don't fucking get it. What am I missing? What is so fascinating about her? Because she seems so boring and vacuous. I can't, what is it? Please, somebody tell me. Speaking of boring and Pete Davidson, let's give that mother just a minute of our time because I really think he's like some kind of PR plan. I mean, listen to this fucking headline. The ultimate rebound romance. Pete Davidson and Emily whatever go public with new relationship on flirty date at NBA game in New York after his split from Kim Kardashian and her marriage collapse. I mean... Thank fucking God that's a digital paper, because if that headline was in print, that would be one big-ass fucking newspaper. I mean, what happened to those, like, brief and snappy headlines? I think he's made, like, the same deal with the devil that a lot of other mediocre comedians have made. (coughs) Colbert, Kimmel, Handler, Schumer! (coughs) Pardon me. And... Don't say big dick energy, okay? Don't say it. Number one, because Madison LaCroix ruined it before it could even become a thing. And if it was a thing, then she killed it. Big dick energy. 
Okay, you get the point. And number two, because it's a stupid thing to say. It's more than likely that he's some kind of stupid plant for PR or publicity because he's not good looking or extremely talented or even funny. Yet he's seemingly everywhere and in everyone. Okay, on to another untalented mother. See these seamless transitions. <laughs> is anyone else as happy as I am that Trevor Noah is leaving The Daily Show? I mean, I admit it. I never watched a single episode with him in it as the host, even though I did watch it when Craig Kilburn hosted it, and even a little bit with Jon Stewart. But it was simply because the promos are not funny. And normally you'd want your best stuff in a commercial, right? I mean, not funny, nothing. In fact, and it pains me to say this, okay? But Trevor Noah's comedy and maybe, maybe even like delivery reminds me of Blair's cousin Jerry in The Facts of Life. Like... Because it's not funny because the jokes are so obvious, but you feel bad because they're trying their best. So you're polite and you just clap and like force a laugh. I mean, I know that's a shitty thing to say, but I don't care. I don't care. It's my feeling. It's my truth. Okay. Is that it? Are we done? Okay, no, wait. You have to hear this shit from Billie Eilish. Yes, that's what I call her. And th this is a cold read, so bear with me, all right? The headline is, I felt so hopeless because I'm a girl. Billie Eilish reflects on falling into a, quote, pit of hopelessness, end quote, where she, quote, cried in bed, end quote, because of her gender. Billy has revealed she once felt so hopeless because she's a girl and would cry in bed after falling into a pit of hopelessness. This singer, 20, recounted a time when she believed she would never perform in the way she wanted to due to female representation in the music industry. She made the tragic confession after being featured by BBC 100 Women in its 2022 list as part of a season of content celebrating 100 inspiring and influential women from around the world. The bad guy hitmaker told the broadcaster, there was a specific period of time when I was in this pit of hopelessness about myself as I didn't have much to look up to in terms of girls like me being taken seriously. I remember just crying in my bed because I was thinking about the kind of show I would want to put on. I would just feel so hopeless because I'm a girl, so I'm never gonna be able to have a show like that. I'm never going to be able to have, to be free up there and wild, perform in this way and be more physical and be more about the performance. I thought it would never happen. In an intimate half hour interview set to air on Tuesday, blah, blah. The megastar also explored how she feels about amalgamating the masculine and feminine aspects of herself. Okay. What is it? about this subsection of like a millennial Zoomer feminist where they conveniently forget or they like subconsciously denigrate the women who laid the found work for them to be exactly who the fuck they are. Like there's something unique. You tell me what she's doing that's so fucking revolutionary, okay? M more than Wendy Williams from The Plasmatics Patti Smith, Debbie Harry, Tina Turner, Annie Lennox, or hell, even fucking Pink? I'm sorry, is riding a tricycle on stage something that I'm missing? Okay, and then she contradicts herself. Hang on, I'm scrolling to it. Okay, but speaking about the music industry, she does think that there has been a lot of progress for women saying the way that women have been absolutely towering over everyone in this industry right now, 
works recently. It's so exciting to me. It makes me feel really hopeful and inspired. It's not only women doing one thing, it's women doing all kinds of different things and looking different and acting different and having different styles. There's such a range right now and so nice to see and it's refreshing and new and it's never been like that. It's really cool to be a part of it. What? Make fucking sense of that shit, would you? <gasps> okay, I feel better now, don't you? As always, it's been a pleasure. And even though I hate seeing you go, I do love watching you leave. But before we say goodbye, let's remember a saying from a titan of industry, a real suave mother, and a person whom everyone goes to for advice. Ja Rule, who once said, it's gonna create a small buzz that can be a big buzz. It's free press. You can't pay for that kind of press. So tell your friends about this dumpster fire chatting tonight. And I'll see you guys next time. Although he had been using the term for some years prior, Freud formally introduced the concept of narcissism into psychoanalytic theory. Oh my God, am I drunk? I haven't been drinking, but yet I sound drunk.